Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is John Samples. I'm vice president here at the uh, Cato Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to our forum today, marking the 60th anniversary of the important Supreme Court decision in NAACP versus Alabama, a decision that no doubt deserves a great more attention than it has received uh, in our public life. Uh, as always in our public forums here at Cato, we will hear from both of our speakers. Perhaps also they will respond to one another. Uh, and then we will go to uh, question and answer, probably around 1 o'clock or so. And then around 1.30 uh, after the Q&A, we will break for lunch. Um, to start today, I want to begin very briefly with the facts of the case of NAACP versus Alabama. The importance of it, the implications of it, I will leave to our speakers today. Uh, and the debate over its significance for us today, I will also leave to them. But let's begin with the facts. In 1956, Alabama demanded that the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, provide a list of all the members, all of its members in the state of Alabama. And this demand was ultimately based on the state's foreign corporation registration law, which state officials were using in, as a way of trying to stop the NAACP from conducting activities in the state. The nature of those activities you may well easily remember. They were part of the uh, long struggle for civil rights in Alabama and elsewhere. And these were state officials who wished that those, that struggle, those protests, those political efforts, that, that political speech would stop. And the foreign co corporation uh, registration law was a convenient way to try to act on that. This was, in a sense, from that core effort to suppress political activities. This was a secondary effort uh, in the course of litigation around the, the uh, corporation law. They demand, the Alabama moved for the production of a large number of the NAACP's records, including uh, a request for a membership list. Now, the NAACP did reply on all of the requests except for the one thing, the membership list. And there were significant consequences to that refusal. We look back and know the result of all of this and think it wasn't perhaps a big deal, but there was actually a great deal at stake, part of what we'll talk about today. At that time, the trial court found that for refusing the membership list, the NAACP would be held in contempt and imposed a $100,000 fine in 1956 dollars. It was significant. So by the time the, the, the question reached the Supreme Court, it was whether compelled disclosure of membership list violates, violated the NAACP members' rights of freedom of association. And that's will be our subject today. We shall hear from two uh, recognized experts in the areas of the First Amendment and campaign finance. We shall first hear from Bradley Smith. Brad Smith holds the Josiah H. Blackmore II and Shirley M. Nott Professor of Law position at Capital University Law School. He is one of the nation's leading authorities on election law and campaign finance. 
His 2001 book, Unfree Speech, The Folly of Campaign Finance Reform, was praised by George Will as, quote, the year's most important book on governance. I would say that with the passage of time, the importance of that book is becoming clearer to everyone who is engaged in the campaign finance and First Amendment uh, debates and advocacy. He has published widely in both popular publications and his scholarly work has appeared in leading journals. In, 19, in 2000, he was nominated by President Clinton to serve on the Federal Election Commission, where he served for five years, including as chairman of the commission. He went on to uh, found the Center for Competitive Politics, now called the Institute for Free Speech, and as a continuation of his scholarly and political work. He's been on the Capital University Law School faculty since 1993. He earned his BA from Kalamazoo College and his JD from Harvard Law School and holds an honorary doctorate from Augustana College. Brad, welcome back to Cato. Thank you, John. Thank you all for coming out on your uh, lunch hour here. Um, so John gave you a, a little background on the case. I just want to elaborate on that a bit or perhaps reiterate it, uh, how everyone wants to think about it. You have to picture yourself, you're a, uh, an establishment politician in Alabama in the fall of 1956, and you've got a major problem. And that problem is an organization called the NAACP. The NAACP, of course, litigated Brown versus Board of Education, which you were not happy with, and you have now uh, publicly made clear that you intend to resist that decision to the extent possible. The NAACP has continued to bring lawsuits seeking to enforce that decision. And it was an NAACP activist who uh, forced the integration at the state university. It was another NAACP activist, Rosa Parks, who incited a bus boycott within the city by refusing to give up her seat on the bus. And this bus boycott is very painful in the state capitol and, and elsewhere around the state. Uh, the bus companies are private companies, so they're obviously unhappy to lose a lot of their riders. And African-Americans made up about 75% of the ridership. And uh, because of the segregated living patterns and so on, African-Americans, where did they ride those buses to? Very frequently, they rode those buses into the downtown shopping area. And so the downtown merchants were uh, being uh, severely burdened as well. Additionally, NAACP was bringing a host of other lawsuits pertaining to voting rights and discrimination in public accommodations and other areas within the civil rights regime. And so, as a member of the state's political establishment, you would really, really like to get rid of this organization. And if you could, you just have a feeling, perhaps not true, but people often think this in politics, if we just get rid of those people, our problems would be solved. And so the state set about trying to shut down the NAACP. And as John noted, they used, you know, if you wanted to abbreviate it all, you could call it sort of a legal technicality or maybe a strange reading of the state's uh, foreign corporations law to try to shut down the NAACP. And the NAACP resisted that in court. The state came out and said, well, we need to know who all your members are. 
we need all the correspondence and members, and we need to, to know who's behind this organization, who's donating to this organization. Now, you can imagine the scenario, how this would play out in 1950s Alabama. As the uh, NAACP emphasized in its legal briefs in the case that went to the Supreme Court, the state wanted here nothing its true aim was to shut down the NAACP and to shut down opposition to the state's segregation policies. That's what the case is about. And that's going to be done not necessarily by shutting down the NAACP formally. Maybe you can't win that, you know. But even if you can't win that, if you can just force the disclosure of the organization's members, you will probably accomplish the same thing because in the Deep South in the 1950s, membership and more importantly financial support was quite likely to dry up. It could be very, very hard on folks. There were cases, of course, of business boycotts. Uh, if you uh, did not follow the segregation rules, there were many cases of you know, just shunning and then violence, including physical violence. And in extreme cases, people even had to worry and had realistic concerns about their lives. Okay? And so making this information public or giving it to the state, which might somehow accidentally let it be made public, could be very, very dangerous. Additionally, you could have state officials simply decide that they were not going to uphold the law to protect certain individuals. In fact, the attorney general at the time, John Patterson, later as governor of the state, made very clear that the state could not assure and would not attempt to assure the physical safety of freedom riders in Alabama. And you could see that being done a couple years earlier, too, perhaps without a public announcement. But just some people would know that, well, if you know nasty folks showed up and started you know, burning crosses in front of their house or burning their house or whatever, maybe law enforcement would be very, very slow uh, to respond, if at all. So we have to consider uh, this kind of scenario. Now, in that circumstance, the Supreme Court said, look, a fundamental part of the First Amendment right to association is the right to associate anonymously is the right to associate without having to tell everybody who you're talking to and who you're meeting with. If you, if you have to do that, the right itself could be threatened in certain circumstances. And note, it's not going to just be, uh, uh, well, the ideas that are going to be most threatened are the ideas that are not popular. They're going to be the ones that uh, are new ideas, that are different ideas that promote social change. And so the court, in uh, one of its prouder moments, in NAACP versus Alabama says, no, you can't demand that. Now, you could get it if you had a specific real reason. If this was really connected to, to you had to know who these members were in order to make some determination on this claim that they were violating the Foreign Businesses Act or something like that, yeah, I mean, you can get this for legitimate law enforcement purposes, but you can't just go around collecting this information. All right. Now, one of the things that's often overlooked is people say, well, look, you know, the NAACP was a unique situation because of the threat of violence. But it's important to note that this was not a one-off decision by the Supreme Court. The NAACP versus Alabama is merely the most prominent of a number of decisions in which the court protected the right to privacy in this area. For example, in Thomas v. Collins, it protected the right of union organizers and union members to maintain their privacy. You couldn't just generally force them to do this. In Talley versus California, it said you couldn't, the state couldn't just generically require people who were funding picketers who, you know, they had signs and stuff outside businesses for their segregationist policies. Uh, you couldn't just require them 
to be disclosed. In other words, you couldn't go out and do this kind of bulk disclosure just because you kind of want it to know. And this was true in some states where the states tried to enact this under statutory authority. It's just a statutory thing. You had to disclose this information. And in other states where it was done again as part of these kinds of investigations, sometimes trumped up investigations, sometimes perhaps more real investigations, but always not really necessary to the investigation. We protected the right of teachers in Shelton v. Tucker not to have to say whether they were members of the Communist Party or not. You know, if it affected their job, a school district could fire them if they refused to teach the curriculum or something like that. But you couldn't just say, we want to know what groups you belong to. And if you don't tell us, you can't be hired as a teacher. So NAACP versus Alabama is not a one-off based on specific and particular and egregious threats to the members of the NAACP, even if it is a unique case on its own facts. Now, let's fast forward a little bit from these cases that took place in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, just a, a decade or so beyond the last of these cases, a little bit more to the Federal Election Campaign Act in Buckley v. Vallejo, the Supreme Court upheld disclosure, mandatory compulsory disclosure, of contributions that people make to political committees, parties, and candidates. Okay. I sometimes say, uh, uh, what the heck, I'll, I'll, I'll digress here a bit. You know, I sometimes point out, if, if we had a law that simply said, you know, the Trump administration is now going to require you to report your political activity to the government so that they can make sure that we don't have, you know, the wrong people maybe trying to influence our government, foreigners or something like that, right? Um, how would people react? I think people would be up in arms. I think the American left would go berserk. They'd be like, this is terrible. This is the worst thing in the world. I often point out to people, well, actually, we already have that act. It's called the Federal Election Campaign Act, and you have to disclose to the government who you give political contributions to, at least one form of your political activity. And they put it out on the web where anybody can use it. But OK. The Supreme Court has upheld this, and it's upheld it for reasons that believe that this would help to enforce the campaign finance laws. It would tell voters something about their government, and enable voters to monitor their government, make sure that uh, people were not too compliant with the wishes of large donors. And it would even just provide information to donors about the candidates that they were going to vote for that would be helpful to them in voting. Okay, But note what else the Supreme Court did in that case. The disclosure law in Buckley went far beyond this. The disclosure law in Buckley would have required disclosure of the members of any organization that spent $1,000 Right? or in some cases less, to uh, influence an election. The frame, what does influence an election mean? As Justice Holmes once said, every idea is an incitement to people to act in some way to vote or, or not to vote. And so the Supreme Court in Buckley v. Vallejo upheld this political disclosure law, but only after severely truncating it and saying, no, 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 you don't get disclosure from any group that's doing anything that might influence an election. You get disclosure for groups that when people give money directly to parties, candidates, and political committees, you get disclosure when groups make ads that specifically advocate for the election or defeat of a candidate, right? And you get disclosure of the people who gave money in the latter case specifically to run those sorts of ads. But you don't get disclosure of every group that might do anything that might influence an election. And in that respect, it carved out an exception to the sort of rule of NAACP versus Alabama, but only in that narrow case of overt elective political activity. Okay. Now, 
I mention this because the debate today and the debate over the current, uh, the, the continuing, or, or why I think NAACP versus Alabama is still relevant, goes to the nature of the debate today. So often people attempt to frame this debate as, well, are you opposed to disclosure or do you favor disclosure? And I want to point out that the debate today and the question of the continuing relevance of NAACP, at least immediately, is not about political disclosure as that has been traditionally viewed since Buckley. That is, nobody that I know of is making a serious effort at the federal level or in any state to uh, roll back laws requiring the disclosure of political contributions to candidates, parties, political action committees, or independent expenditures made for the purpose of advocating the election or defeat of candidates. That is not what this is about. And contrary to what many people think, many people seem to think super PACs don't disclose their donors. No, super PACs disclose their donors. They disclose all of their donors. They're a PAC. They're, they're a political committee. They disclose their donors just like other PACs. Okay? So the question then, and, and where this issue comes into play, is are we going to expand our disclosure laws into areas where they have not reached in the past? And that is, are we going to require disclosure of organizations that merely want to talk about public issues, issues of public concern, without specifically advocating the election or defeat of a candidate, right? and without necessarily giving money to those candidates. And those groups look to me surprisingly like NAACP in the 1950s, that is, and today. That is, they're groups that are working to change public opinion, that are arguing for changes in public policy, that in some cases are bringing lawsuits, public interest lawsuits as we call them, aimed at changing that kind of government policy. And that is the scenario that we have today. So this case is not about the question of are we going to require political disclosure. That issue seems to be pretty well settled by Buckley v. Vallejo. And like I say, there's no effort that I know of that is serious to roll those kinds of laws back. So it's important that we remember what the case is about. Now that leads us to the question, should we expand those laws? Well, maybe the public would like to know who funds the Sierra Club or who funds the Rifle Association or who funds uh, Americans for Prosperity or who funds any of these various groups. Maybe the public would like to know that. And we often hear it framed as the public has a right to know. Well, the public doesn't have a right to know everything, right? I mean, we could, it would be helpful to law enforcement, I suppose, if all your tax returns were put on the internet and made public. That'd be helpful, and your neighbors could report you and file complaints against you if they thought you were violating the tax code. You know, that guy's got a nice Beamer over there. I don't think his reported income illustrates the ability to afford a Beamer, let alone the second one he just bought, okay? So you've got that kind of problem going out there. But we don't say, well, the public has a right to know. And we don't say, well, I just want to know about that person. We don't allow that, okay? In fact, in many cases, if we follow this approach, we're going to get information that's going to be downright misleading. If we want to know, for example, uh, let's suppose that the uh, American uh, Cancer Society runs some ads urging Congress not to cut the budget for cancer research. And we have some you know, right-winger who's a supporter of the Cancer Society who thinks, see, we need to cut the federal budget. Everybody's got to make sacrifices. No, no uh, you know, uh, uh, sacred cows here. Everything's got to be on the block. He might have 
oppose the ads that the Cancer Society is running and yet favor the Cancer Society and be a major donor to the Cancer Society. So if we then publish him as being the supporter of the ads that the Cancer Society is running, what have we accomplished other than to confuse the electorate about what the person, you know, what people are actually supporting this campaign to increase or at least maintain funding for cancer research? We're not even getting good information out of this. And of course, many other donors may have no idea what the Cancer Society is doing in these ads. They just, they just think the Cancer Society is generally a good cause, and they leave it up to the Cancer Society to do what they're going to do. They don't control the money anymore. They gave it to the Cancer Society. It's not their money. Right? They gave it away. Maybe they really are mad at the Cancer Society and won't give to them again, should they be identified as the people who are supporting this ad campaign in this particular situation. And of course, what we're looking at again is laws that are defining more and more broadly electoral activity to include anything that mentions politics at any point in time. And this to me is uh, a dangerous area to be going into because again, as Holmes said, every idea is an incitement, an incitement to vote, an incitement to support a particular party or whatever. And are we going to let this swallow up our First Amendment rights? Now, back to the idea of the NAACP, a lot of people say, they, well, you know, people don't have the threats that the NAACP had. And the question is just how big should the threats be? Just how big should the threats be before you get some protection for your right to associate and not have to reveal to the government under compulsion of law who you're meeting with or who you're supporting financially? For example, we do know of cases where people are required to report and have faced severe retaliation. A woman named Margie Christofferson was a restaurant manager in California. She gave $100 to the Proposition 8 cause. This was the uh, uh, same-sex marriage initiative in California uh, a few years back, right? Protesters boycotted the restaurant, picketed the restaurant. At one point, they were so unruly, riot police had to be called in, right? The restaurant began to close off sections and lay off employees. And finally, Marjorie Christofferson said, I will quit. And not just quit, I will leave Los Angeles so that these people don't lose their jobs. That's what she did. But she lost her job in the process, right? We have people, we have situations. Linda Bean is the granddaughter of L.L. Uh, Bean, the outfitters up in Maine, right? She made some contributions to a group that some people on the political left didn't like, so they started boycotting L.L. Bean. Well, L.L. Bean did it, right? It was Linda Bean did it. Now, she was on the board, but she was just one member of the board of the company and did it with her private funds, didn't affect company policy or anything like that. We have many other cases where you can find where people have been hounded from their jobs or fired from their jobs, where people have reported uh, vandalism against their property. And we have to ask ourselves, how much bravery should we require of people? You know, the reasons to participate in public life can be very thin. We don't always appreciate that because all of us, by the very nature of the fact that we come to this, kind of lecture or this debate, you know, this discussion, we're kind of like, you know, we're into public. We're, we're open. We're out there, most of us. A lot of people, though, are not. And they're not so eager to have their social relationships blown up or to have the thought, even if it's maybe only a slim chance of protesters outside their door. Is it really so far-fetched that in today's present environment, we could start to have bombs going off at the homes of major supporters to people in the pro-life or pro-choice movements? Is that really far-fetched? You can't imagine that happening? And when that does, people are going to say, well, how did they get that information on these people's addresses or their workplaces? And we're going to say, well, because we passed laws 
And people challenged those laws in court, and they said, this shouldn't be allowed under an NAACP versus Alabama. And our court said, nah, we think it's okay. We think NAACP versus Alabama is a unique case. Until you can show that you have actual death threats, i.e., until the horse is out of the barn, you don't get any protection. So that's the debate that we're really having today. Is are we going to let this idea of anything that might affect politics swallow up all of our First Amendment rights, or are we going to keep it restricted to that narrow area of overt political uh, participation? And I think when we really look at it and we really ask ourselves, what are the benefits of this kind of disclosure? So I've said sometimes it's misleading. There's very little evidence that voters use it at all. Um, typically, if they use it, there's names of people they don't know anything about. Most of the people who use it don't use it to learn about candidates. They use it because they say, I know what I think about candidates, and I know what I think about that speech, and I hate those people, and I'm going to retaliate against them in some way other than trying to change minds. That's the battle that we're facing. And I think when we recognize that those are the terms, we'll recognize that NAACP should not be allowed to become a dead letter. It is not a case that was intended to be, or that was for many years, restricted to its facts. And we should see that we retain a robust right to our privacy to engage in public affairs. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Our second speaker will be Lawrence Noble, who, unless I'm mistaken, this is his first uh, visit in the Cato Forum. This is your first time uh, here? Yes. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Larry Noble has been working on political law and democracy issues for over 40 years, including 13 years as general counsel of the Federal Election Commission. Most recently, he was senior director and general counsel at the Campaign Legal Center a position he left on June 1st to do consulting, write a book, and, pl and play with his dog, Lincoln. He is an advisor to the American Law Institute's Principles of Government Ethics Project and an on-air CNN co contributor. He has served as president of Americans for Campa Campaign Reform, practiced political law at Skadden Arps, was executive director of the Center for Re Responsive Politics, and taught campaign finance law as an adjunct professor at George Washington University for over 15 years. Larry co-authored the Corporate Political Activities Desk Book, published in 2012, and he has authored numerous articles, op-eds, and blog posts on money and politics. He has litigated campaign finance cases, including before the Supreme Court and testified before Congress and state legislatures. In 2000, Larry received the Kojal Award for his outstanding contribution to the field of campaign finance and ethics. Larry? Thank you very much. Thank you, John. And it is a pleasure to be here. I've been here once before, and that was when, Brad, were you, um, confirmed, were you sworn in here? Um, or maybe David? You were. You were. As a commissioner, and that's the last time I was here. Uh, Watch Brad get sworn in, so I'm glad to be back. Um, yep. Yeah. more time here. <laughs> Uh, this week, 18 years ago this week, June 26th. So we just missed it. Sorry you had to wait so long. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, my, my interest in this goes way back, and I have to tell you that when I started at the Federal Election Commission in 1977 as a litigation attorney, literally the first case handed to me was uh, Socialist Workers' Party versus FEC. And that was a case in which the Socialist Workers' Party actually sued before the FEC came into existence. The case was transferred to the FEC. 
uh, sued to get out of the reporting requirements, saying that they had been harassed. And I remember my supervisor coming into me, dumping this big folder on my desk and saying, the court has ordered the FEC to decide whether um, the Socialist Workers Party should be given an exemption from the reporting requirements. Uh, put together a record and figure out whether they should be exempt. Um, it was fun. We got to um, send um, requests for admissions to uh, the FBI, the CIA, the, the, the military, police, uh, police um, departments. It was the only time I was ever invited over to the CIA to talk to the uh, general counsel of the CIA who said to me, what are you guys doing? Um, and in the end, we decided that they actually did deserve an exemption because there was a long history of the government and private um, entities harassing the Socialist Workers' Party, investigating the Socialist Workers' Party. There was evidence that at some point in at least some of the local parties, um, the FBI agents made up the um, majority of the members. Um, in fact, there's evidence that they ran for office on the SWP banner in, in cases. Um, so they were given the exemption. My understanding is the exemption was renewed by the FEC up until 2016 when they split, the commission split 3-3 on renewing the exemption. So I've had this long history with this issue. Um, I'm gonna, uh, John gave us two questions, or framed this in two questions initially. I'm gonna answer those right off the bat. Is the right to associational privacy recognized in NAACP versus Alabama still good law? Yes. Um, or should the court reconsider the tie between privacy and association? Yes. Um, but I think that's a necessity because of where we are in technology, because of uh, right now, I, I frankly think that one of the greatest um, uh, dangers to our right of privacy happens to be extra governmental with things like Facebook and Twitter and, and, uh, and basically companies uh, keeping all this data on us. But, um, but we obviously want to go beyond that, and I want to respond to some of the things that Brad said also. Um, John did a great job of summarizing uh, NAACP and um, Brad added to it. I think it is important to recognize that at the time the NAACP case was cited, I just have a few little facts here. In 1954, White Citizens Council formed in the South um, to harass blacks engaged in civil rights activity. Um, in 1954, you also had the Brown versus Board of Education, which got a lot of pushback in the South. Um, in 1955, 14-year-old um, Emmett Till was murdered in Mississippi. Um, in 1956, uh, the first black student was um, enrolled at the University of Alabama, but she was expelled four days later. Um, in 1956, there was a Southern Manifesto signed by 101 Southern U.S. Senators and representatives to encourage resistance um, to the civil rights. And then in 1957, President Eisenhower had to send troops into Arkansas. Uh, I tell you that because what the court said in NAACP is very fact-specific. It was that when you're dealing with a situation where the government is asking for information that it frankly doesn't need, and there is a long history of harassment, physical violence, threats against the people, um, then the associational right is, is going to outweigh the government's interest. What the court did is did not set up a blanket exemption based on associational rights, on privacy. What it said was the government is going to have to show a good reason for the information. And what the court also did was it kind of balanced that need against, um, against the potential harassment or threat of harassment. Um, you know, on one end of the spectrum would be, in my view, NAACP, where, um, as John had mentioned, NAACP actually turned over most of the documents Alabama had asked for. They, and they even turned over the names of the officers of the organization. Um, but they would not turn over the rank-and-file members. 
and the court found that there was no need for that information to decide the issues that the, end of, uh, that the uh, state of Alabama had put forward. Other end, other end, on the other end of the, uh, of the spectrum could be a case where there's a criminal investigation going on um, of a terrorist group, and they have evidence that, of who the terrorist group is, and that they were about to do something terrible, and they want information of who the members are of the terrorist group. And I think everybody would agree that those are two opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, when you get to political activity, I think you're dealing with a difficult issue, but I think generally the court has drawn uh, much the right balance. Um, the NAACP case has continued after and has been used a number of times. Um, Buckley versus Vallejo um, was the first case really that dealt with the contribution limits and the disclosure of political activity. Now, Brad says that nobody um, is really asking that the basic disclosure of political activity or, or, or campaign finance activity um, uh, be uh, undermined or be eliminated. And that's actually not true. There are cases that are being brought that are attacking even the basic disclosure. And there are proposals in Congress occasionally to um, raise the thresholds for disclosure, all on this idea, really a two-pronged idea. One is it's a violation of your associational rights because um, People may be harassed, may be attacked, may be boycotted. And two, um, the information is not really useful. And Brad made one of those arguments about the usefulness of the information. But over and over again, in Buckley and in cases after that, the court has found that the political information um, or the financial information is important to our politics that it serves several different purposes. It serves the purpose of, one, providing information to the electorate. You, <coughs> excuse me, you can tell a lot about a person by where they receive money. Now, Brad says people don't look at that. Actually, they do. Or if they don't look at it directly, they read newspaper articles that rely on it. Or, dramatic pause, or um, they, they belong to organizations that use that information to decide who to endorse. Uh, that information does tell you a lot. Now, um, John mentioned that I was executive director of the Center for Responsive Politics for six years. Center for Responsive Politics has the website opensecrets.org, and more people know about opensecrets.org than Center for Responsive Politics. And the job of opensecrets.org is to put on the internet the information about campaign finance and to connect the various dots on both the right and the left, Republicans and Democrats, of who is giving, what interests are behind it. And people do find it tremendously helpful. So there is that basic, and I consider this almost a first, I do, not almost, I consider this a first amendment right, this basic right to information about your government. Um, how can you be a um, responsible citizen and voter if the government, if you're not told who is actually funding elections, if you're not told who is behind uh, policies, if you're not told um, who the elected officials may be responsive to? And the Supreme Court has said being responsive to your donors is not bribery, is not, um, is not illegal. That may very well be true, but it is something people may want to know about that you are being responsive to your donors and who those donors are. Another reason for disclosure is enforcement. Uh, it was very common at the FEC that going through the reports, you would see excessive contributions. Now, the first line would be to send out a, what was called a request for additional information, <coughs> excuse me, and ask them to explain it. And often it came back that this was a mistake and the money was refunded, et cetera. But sometimes you'd find a violation. Um, you sometimes could find corporate money. Some people were foolish enough to put um, the uh, uh, name of the corporation on their check. Uh, so the check was from ABC Inc. 
and that would get them a request for additional information. Is this money really from a corporation? These corporations can't give to candidates. Um, it also gave rise to investigations of money laundering or in campaign finance parlance, uh, contributions in the name of another. When you would see a whole bunch of contributions coming in on the same day, um, and that you would see um, that they may be coming in from people who you may not expect based on their jobs to be making those type of contributions. Inquiries may be made or complaints may be made on, based on that. And there were some big cases uh, um, on that, one of them against Al Gore's committee um, for, uh, um, uh, and there wasn't evidence that the committee knew about it, but there was evidence that, um, that people had used others um, to funnel contributions to the campaign. And one of the ways you tell that is by looking at contribution patterns. Now, admittedly, you have to be very careful about that. Um, we learned early on that um, you couldn't just look at, you know, there's a big concern over foreign national contributions. You, just could not, you couldn't just look at where um, the uh, giver gave, but if you're foreign national, you can't give. If you are a green card holder, you can give as long as you're in the United States when you give. And if you're a US citizen, you can give no matter where you are. And we saw at one time a bunch of contributions, a number of contributions coming from Mexico. Um, and that raised a lot of red flags until we looked a little further and it was from a, basically it was a US retirement community on the border in Mexico. Um, so you, know, you have to be careful about these things, but it is very helpful. Um, it also deters, that enforcement part also deters future violations. I think knowing that their campaigns are going to be looked at does deter um, uh, campaigns from accepting excessive contributions or paying more attention to what the contribution limits are. Knowing that there might be a news story that the accepted excessive contributions makes some campaigns, unfortunately not all, but some campaigns more, um, more careful about looking at and vetting the contributions. And then there's the big one, um, which is foreign nationals, as I mentioned. Um, you know, we are right now very concerned in an investigation to foreign national involvement in, in our elections. Um, if you did not have disclosure, uh, it would be even harder to find foreign national contributions. It's hard right now, but it'd be even harder. Uh, so all of this is justified. Now, the area, and, and I think Brad would agree with those, that type of, that type of uh, um, disclosure, which is a disclosure of money going to campaigns, political parties, and PACs, and, and even super PACs. Where we have our disagreement is... Um, what all of that means, and what does it mean to say that you're tracing money? It is not true that reformers in the campaign finance field are asking to see everything that, these, that the Sierra Club has or that the Cato Institute has. Um, they're not asking to see all these documents. Um, rather, what people are asking for is to trace the money, to find out if you're spending money on elections, to find out where that money is coming from. And one of the things that's happened under our current system is we have super PACs. And super PACs, as you all know, can make unlimited independent expenditures. They have to be independent of the candidate. And they can accept unlimited corporate labor individual contributions. And they have to report them, all well and good. But what we have seen is um, a number of C4 organizations or limited liability companies making very large contributions to super PACs. Well, that basically does away with disclosure because you don't know who's actually giving the money. An LLC could be one person in some cases, um, and the FEC had uh, brought some actions, and actually they're in court now. Um, FEC just lost on this, but um, I'm sorry, the FEC won on this. Um, we filed a complaint against the FEC for dismissing a case, and the FEC won on it. Uh, but what we had is a situation where there were limited liability companies giving contributions to super PACs, 
Um, and uh, and um, when I was at Campaign Legal Center, we filed a, c a complaint saying that that's not good enough disclosure because there's one individual behind these. In most of cases, in some cases we knew who it was, in some we don't. Um, and that person should be reported as a contributor instead of going through a limited liability company. Uh, the FEC split on the, on the case. We sued, um, and the court said that it, it was not arbitrary for the commission not to go forward on it. But think about what that means, is that if you have enough money, what you can do is just set up an LLC. And when I was in private practice, I could set up one up for you in you know, 48 hours. Um, or I can set up a C4 for you in 24 hours. Um, you can set up a C4 and LLC, dump all your money into that, and then have that make the contribution. And now what you have is no disclosure. Uh, and that is a real problem. And that's the area, I think, where there's real disagreement, is how far back can you go? What can you do to get at that money? And I think, um, I think in NAACP and the cases that followed it, uh, Buckley versus Vallejo, um, Socialist Workers Party versus Brown, all stand for the proposition that disclosure is important. And you can have disclosure, but there may come the case where threats, violence, harassment reach a point where you have to say these people are exempt from disclosure. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is cases where people, they tend to be individual wealthy, wealthy individuals, are giving money through LLCs or through C4s, and that money is, they know that money is going to, um, to help campaigns. Um, so that's one problem that we have to really face, and that's one area where I think NAACP and the cases that followed it all would allow the disclosure, the requirement that you have to actually disclose the ultimate giver of that contribution. Now, admittedly, it gets harder because you can have one C4 giving to a super PAC. That C4 got the money from another C4, which got the money from an LLC. Um, and how far back can you go? And that's something that we're struggling with, is how far back can you reasonably go? Um, one thing to keep in mind in all of this is one safeguard, and I, I don't think this will placate Brad on it, is you can set thresholds. Um, right now, on disclosure, there's a giving over, you only, as an individual, you only disclose you give over $200. Um, you can set, even on, these, even on cases dealing with giving to super PACs or, or C4s, um, you can set thresholds of how much money, $50,000. They have to report everybody who gave over $50,000. Uh, this is, I think, fundamental to our democracy. If people can show that by supporting a certain candidate, they are being harassed, and I understand the difficulty of people who find that they are... Um, you know, that, that they are targeted by um, other citizens. I, 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 and, I, and, and I think that, um, that is, that's a problem that we have to deal with or thrown out of restaurants. But, you know, that is, that is as Justice Scalia, who I don't often quote, as he would say, is that one of the products of being in a democracy, um, that it takes a certain amount of civic courage to be in a democracy. But what we're talking about here is a disclosure of a relatively small group of people. And I will give you one statistic on it. In 25 and 2016, the percentage of the U.S. population giving over $200 in a federal campaign, and that is the itemized threshold, threshold is one half of 1%. Um, one half of 1% of the population are the, are the people who we're talking about here. So this is not people who just join an association. This is not your average small donor. Why is that important? Because the larger the amount of money you're giving, the more you're going to have influence and the more that you are going to have some say over what goes on. So that's one issue that you have to deal with is where is the threshold. The second issue that you have to deal with is, we, Brad referred to giving direct contributions, correct. And the Supreme Court in Buckley also said that if you, uh, if you fund express advocacy, which they defined in Buckley as vote for, elect, defeat, um, then, and it's independent of a campaign, 
then it cannot be limited in how much you spend, but you can require disclosure. Um, the Supreme Court uh, later in McConnell versus FEC upheld the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which expanded that to electioneering communications. And that was money that is spent um, 30 days before primary, 60 days before general, and it names the candidate. And it, it's aimed at the candidate. It's only broadcast, and it's, names, and it's aimed at the candidate's elector. Uh, and so those are, but those are what I would call easy to, easy to determine election-related activity. Another issue that we have to deal with besides the threshold is what do we consider election activity? What we now know about the Russian uh, alleged attempt to influence our elections, the attempt to influence our elections, is a lot of the Facebook ads did not name candidates. A lot of the Facebook ads were aimed at issues that were very important and divisive in, uh, in our elections. I will be the first to admit that's a difficult issue to get at. And it, frankly, it concerns me. Um, on one hand, I strongly believe we do not want foreign nationals interfering with our elections. Um, I also think there are other elements that we don't want interfering with our foreign elections, and we want disclosure of all that. But I also agree with Brad to, to, uh, to some extent that we don't want to go after issue groups, pure issue groups. Um, and the court has recognized that there is some, um, you know, there's obviously a, 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 a area of, of um, vagueness or area of, of uh, uncertainty of when something becomes an issue ad and something becomes an election ad. But I think there are ways to deal with that. Um, and I think you're, you have much broader ways of dealing it when you're dealing with foreign nationals. Um, but again, the, um, the, the fact is that we want to know, we have a right to know, and I would say again, we have a First Amendment right to know, um, who is influencing our elections? Who is paying for our campaigns? Who will our elected official, who are, might our elected officials be beholden to? And I found when I use that phrase, who they might be beholden to, people look at it negatively. Well, actually, if they're beholden to somebody I agree with, I look at it positively. If they're beholden to a group I support, I look at, okay, you know, I would prefer a system that didn't have that kind of influence, frankly. And I think there are systems that you can have that don't. But if you're going to have it, at least I'm going to look at people who are getting money from the people I'm more concerned about. For me, I put a lot of weight when somebody is getting a lot of small contributions. Personally, if you're running for office and getting a lot of small contributions, I think you're, you're reflecting more of the values I'm interested in. If you're running for office and you're getting contributions from certain, let's say, industries or, or sectors that I am not necessarily in favor of their position or something, I'm less likely to vote for you. But that's what we're talking about here. We are talking about our right for this information. We have to be concerned, as the court has been, and NAACP is still a good law, we have to be concerned about um, harassment, threats of violence. We have to enforce those laws, by the way, about, you know, if you do attack somebody or assault somebody, we have to enforce those laws. Um, but we also have to recognize that there is always going to be some incivility. Unfortunately, it's gotten much, much worse. Um, we have to attack the incivility, um, but we also have to preserve our right to know what our government does, who, and who funds our government. Thank you. So I thought we would have just a, some brief replies, if uh, both of you would like, to what was said here, and then we'll go to the Q&A. Brad, you want to? Yeah. yeah, well, one thing that, uh, I mean, I find encouraging, in some ways I don't know that Larry and I are as far apart as one might initially think, although in some ways we are. I mean, in the sense that um, I'm, although I think there are reasons to question the extent of disclosure in campaigns, in direct campaign contributions, like I say, what would you think about a law where you have to report all your political activity to the government? Where I go, Ugh. But if you just have to report some of it, your financial support for groups, we're all, yeah, we dig that, that's really popular. Okay, maybe, maybe that's fair enough. I think those sometimes we don't think enough about the cost and benefits of that. But having said that, 
I'm not attacking those laws here, certainly not today, and I don't think NAACP stands for those laws, at least not in light of Buckley v. Vallejo, which comes along 18 years later and says, yeah, that you can require disclosure on. And Larry's comments, uh, to some extent, at least show uh, more sympathy uh, toward the idea we don't want to get all issue advertising, right? Um, and most of Larry's comments, I think, focused on campaign giving, the giving to campaigns. Larry says there are efforts to roll that back. I don't really think that matters. I'm not aware of any. I mean, I'm literally not aware of any in any state. Maybe there are a couple or at the federal level to roll those back. There are a few efforts to expand the, the disclosure threshold, which in some states is as low as like 10 bucks. And I think those actually, I don't view that as rolling those laws back. Those are just inflation adjustments. They're not even that. And they're almost certainly valid. We, you know, we don't learn anything from knowing who gave somebody 10 bucks or 20 bucks. This isn't helping with enforcement. This isn't helping with, because uh, you have to report aggregate donations. So if somebody gives you 20 bucks, you know, 50 times, you got to report it. Um, and, you know, we don't need to know at the federal level, it's $200. It's still a pretty small amount. You know, you find me the congressman who can be bought for $200. I'll show you the dumbest congressman we have. Um, I mean, 200 bucks, come on. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff could be could be raised uh, dramatically and should be raised dramatically. We catch up these small donors in this, and and it really serves uh, uh, no purpose. But so Larry focuses on this direct campaign giving, and and what I think NAACP is about, and what we want to talk about today, is this effort which is underway, and at least 24 states have efforts now to expand disclosure beyond this traditional political giving to include giving to organizations and groups, typically nonprofit groups that engage in, you know, sort of direct advocacy on things, uh, groups uh, that organize under Section 501c4 of the tax code, and that would include, you know, the National Resources Defense Council and the Right to Life and, and all these kinds of groups. Um, but there are also efforts to extend that even down to, to think tanks and so on. Remember, Elizabeth Warren had a fit a year or so ago because the Brookings Institute uh, published a study that she didn't like. It went against some of her preferences on banking regulation. And she had to know who's funding this study. We need to know who's funding this. I don't want to you know, go back and push back against the content of the study. I want to push back against who's funding it, right? And, and that's the potential target. I don't think that adds to our public debate. And indeed, I think it's clearly an effort to cut off support uh, for people. A couple years ago, uh, Senator Dick Durbin demanded to know all kinds of folks if they had any connection to the American Legislative Exchange Council and whether they, uh, we, he wanted to know about any support they gave that organization. He said, I plan to make your responses public uh, at a hearing, and he threatened to call a number of these groups to Congress in order to berate them in front of Congress. Now, you might say, look, these are big boys. They can stand up to a little berating from the likes of Dick Durbin. I mean, how tough is that, right? Um, but on the other hand, um, a lot of people don't want to do that, and a lot of groups do perceive a veiled threat there. Uh, as I said again, every idea is an incitement. Maybe there's a little incitement to uh, go after after folks, some sense of, of government retaliation that I think is very uh, dangerous. And then uh, Larry kind of, uh, I'll use this, this is kind of loaded, and so it's a little unfair to Larry, uh, who by the way is a guy I really, I really do have a lot of respect for Larry. We've dealt with these issues over a long period of time, and I've grown very fond of Larry <laughs> in my own way. But so this is a little unfair, but he, he tries to hide behind, I was going to say, the threat of what is often called dark money. And I appreciate he didn't use that phrase. He just said, you know, when these groups, these nonprofits give to a super PAC, and so we don't know who the nonprofit is, right? Well, you know, first, I, I mean, I'm not sure how much that would really help us. You know, if you look at the leading dark money spenders, I was looking it up as he was talking for so far in the 2018 cycle, which is early, but the leading 
you know, spenders who don't disclose all of their donors are groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who knows what they're about, um, the American Chemistry Council, that surprised me, they were, they were number two on the list, um, uh, this crazy scientist, Planned Parenthood Action Fund, I just have no idea who, who, what that group's agenda is and what they're trying to do in American society. Um, you know, groups like that are the major groups. Um, so it's relatively few that we don't still have a really good idea if you want that voter cue as to what these groups are doing. And many of them you can look up in a few minutes online, other big uh, spenders, Susan B. Anthony List, uh, Club for Growth, you can find that out. You know, I don't mind if you don't wanna look at your phones right now and figure out what the Club for Growth's about. Um, it doesn't take time, it's not hard to do. And even with that, even including all of that, this money amounts to something under, in 2016, 3% of total political spending at the federal level. It's just not that much. And there's always been some of this, quote, dark money or undisclosed money, right? There was certainly that under Buckley because remember, under uh, Buckley, groups can do uh, limited independent spending uh, and groups uh, that uh, did not have to report all of their donors when they did independent spending. Uh, they did not have to report every single donor uh, to the organization. So in a sense, there's always been some of this, quote, so-called money that we don't know who it really comes from. I also contest that idea that when, uh, you know, uh, you give money to a super PAC and then the super PAC spends it in some particular way or, you know, a business does that, a nonprofit does that, that the nonprofit is necessarily doing the spending. They, they may or may not approve of that spending. And like I say, it can sometimes be a misleading sort of thing. But I, I think it's important to note that when we're talking about that, we're talking about a very, very small sum of money. And of course, the enforcement rationale goes away for pretty much everything but foreign donors because super PACs can take money from corporations, they can take money from unions, they can take it in unlimited amounts, they can spend it in unlimited amounts. So it really uh, doesn't matter. If we're concerned that only one half of 1% of Americans are giving to political candidates, we might ask ourselves whether we really want to adopt any policy that discourages Americans <laughs> from participating more broadly in civic life. And again, here, I'm not talking about political candidates. I'm talking about donors to issue groups and to organizations and to groups that advocate for policies and changes in society. And do we want to adopt those kinds of policies or not? And, and I'm skeptical that that is a, uh, a particularly wise thing to do. And I, I will say here, and this is not, not popular because every, nobody wants foreign interference in our elections. We want to interfere in other countries' elections. We don't want them interfering in ours. I'm not suggesting that there's a moral equivalency here either. I think it's perfectly legit for us to interfere in their elections. I don't think they should be interfering with ours. And by the way, I think they should probably be trying to stop us from interfering in their elections. I just think we ought to do it, right? Uh, we carry democracy out there. And, I, you know, I, ex I expect the Russians to try to influence our elections. They do operate a 24-hour cable news station in the United States. Um, you know, as I've sometimes said, what kind of geopolitical rival would they be if they didn't try to influence our elections? I'd lose respect for them. But when we, when we take all of that to the end, it's very little money. I mean, it's a tiny little bit of what we spend. And think about this. We didn't sacrifice our rights in this area during the Cold War. You know, when they, it was much more threatening. And now we're dealing with this rump state of the Soviet Union. It's not nearly the threat. And we're all freaking out about it. And we're willing to hand over our privacy rights and some of our, our you know, associated speech rights that go with it because the Russians are buying a few Facebook ads. 
kids. And that brings up one final point I'll make, make real quick, and this is something that, that Larry uh, mentioned, uh, but I don't think it really recognizes the full import of it, which is the technology and the ease of access. You know, when the Federal Election Campaign Act was passed, when Buckley was decided in 1976, you know, when the state was asking for the information on, on NAACP versus Alabama, getting that information out to the public was kind of hard. You know, even if you had like the, the, the campaign disclosure stuff, right, you wanted to know who gave to whom, you had to go down to the FEC's offices and look on Microfish. Remember that stuff the old folks here do, you know, scroll through these things, looking for donors or look at paper copies. Nowadays, again, you can be sitting here, you can look at the name tag of the person who's asking a question, say, I don't want to know who that guy's giving money to, and you can find out before he's done asking his question, right? It's a different world and the intrusion of the government is much, much greater. Because you think about that last example I gave, people can deny service, they can, uh, you know, a uh, partner who's got an interview in a law firm can look up before that young person comes in real quick and say, I don't know who this person's been giving money to um, and decide, you know, to blackball their hiring for that reason. There's lots more ways, the, the, the disclosure is much more intrusive than it used to be. So uh, with those few comments on Larry's points, I'll turn things back over to him to talk about what I, some of my stuff that's nonsense, yeah. Uh, and I have to start by saying I also tremendously respect Brad. And when John asked me to do this, one of the reasons I wanted to do it, many but was because it would be debating Brad. So I've always found him somebody um, who is worth debating. And I respect him for that. Um, so now that I've said that, let me tell you why it's wrong. Um, uh, first of all, uh, I do want to say two words, dark money, um, dark money, dark money. Okay, now I've said dark money. Um, you know, I, I stayed away from it initially um, for a reason, but I'll, I'll talk about it in that frame of why it's called dark money. One of the reasons it's called dark money is we don't know about it. And so when Brad gives a figure that, um, and I'm, I'm sure it's a legitimate figure probably off a website I use or whatever, how much dark money is there, that's how much we know about or we estimate. We actually don't know because we don't, it's called dark money for a reason. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know um, how it's being spent. Um, so it is a major problem. Uh, and one of the problems with campaign, with, in the campaign finance area is not just the influence it has, but the, what it does to people's perception of the elections. Um, what, uh, how people lose confidence in our elections because they feel like they have no say. They see all this money coming in from, uh, from sources they don't know about, and they just feel like they are being um, swamped. And so the average citizen who may only have 50 or $100 to spend on an election feels that they have no voice. The person thinking about running, to, running for office um, and there are some notable exceptions, especially um, in, in this week. But people present running for office who thinks about how much money they have to raise and who they'll have to go to raise it thinks about the dark money, thinks about the C4 money that's going to come into their election. And, and, um, and the parties will often ask, well, can you raise a million dollars? Can you raise $500,000? Because if not, forget it. You're not going to be able to run. You're not going to be able to fight this dark money. So that is a real problem. And not only is the fact that it's unlimited a problem, the bigger problem is we don't know who it's coming from. Sure, in some big cases we know, um, or we suspect, but most cases we don't know. Uh, the, um, the FEC case I, I referred to, as I said, I think in three of the four or five instances um, that they went after, um, they knew who, ultimately because the press had found out, they knew who the money was coming from. And one of them, I think to this day, we don't know who the money came from. Uh, and that is really disturbing. Now, you know, um, I, I, like, I, I, I agree with Brad that I fully expect the Russians to try to influence our elections. I don't expect us to help them. 
Um, I expect us to fight it. I also understand that I won't get into the, you know, the political slash moral implications of this, or that we interfere with other governments' elections. I also expect them to fight it. Um, and, uh, and so this is all about fighting that. This is all about making sure our elections are funded by U.S. citizens or green card holders living in the United States. Um, and so the foreign money issue is a serious issue. Uh, and it is a dark money issue. Because when you have C4 organizations who can um, get involved in politics, and they can even under our Internal Revenue Code as long as their um, primary purpose is not politics, when you have them getting involved with money that we don't know where it's coming from, it could very well be Russian money. It could be Canadian money, because we know they're trying to take over our elections also. Um, it could be Mexican money. We don't know. Um, and that is one thing that I think um, is, is an important problem that we have to face. It could also be people in this country, very wealthy individuals in this country, who, and we know this goes on, who are funding movements, trying to make them look like grassroots movements, and willing to spend an awful lot of money on it. Now, that may be perfectly legal. Let's know about it. Then we can decide whether you want to support it. Um, we're not looking for the general political activity of the Sierra Club um, or the Chamber of Commerce. Um, we're not, now, there are lobbying rules. They do have to report their lobbying and their spending on lobbying, and I think that's good. But we do want to get at their political activity aimed at influencing our elections. Uh, and that, I think, is very important. We're not looking to get at issue ads, generally. Uh, when I, I say generally because if they're, I'll talk about it in some moment, if they're coordinated with a candidate, we may have a different issue. But we're not looking at getting at issue ads. You know, I, don't, you know, I understand when the Sierra Club um, or the Chamber of Commerce puts out an issue ad um, that, uh, that, you know, it may be funded by a few people. It may be funded by hundreds of people or thousands of people. I don't know, but I accept that. But it's not directly interfering with our elections. It's not, its purpose is not to necessarily influence our elections. Um, when you're, you know, one area I did not talk about and Brad didn't touch, didn't, did not touch on is the, this problem with ads that don't look like campaign ads but are in fact coordinated with the candidate. That they, that, that they, that they um, sit down with the candidate and they decide what will be the most effective thing to do um, and they can use unlimited money. Now, if it's coordinated with a candidate, it's supposed to be a contribution. But if we don't know it's coordinated and we don't know where the money is coming from, it's impossible to tell what's going on. And you don't know then who is, quote, buying the election. Um, you know, when you raise Alec, I mean, Alec, I think is a, we don't have to get into a debate about Alec, but I think Alec is, is, is a very specific type of organization. That did fly under the radar for a very long time, now is, is, is more known about, but it works with legislatures, uh, legislators around the country um, it has a lot of corporate donors um, and wealthy donors. It works with legislators around the country to draft legislation. I think the public has a right to know about that. I think when same legislation is being introduced in state after state, that's word for word the same, people may want to know that it's actually all being funded or being, or being drafted by one group. I'm not, you may agree with the legislation. You may think Alec is wonderful. Let's know about it. Um, the, um, you know, the smaller group problem, again, with thresholds and, uh, and uh, we're, we're not, we don't have to go after the smaller groups. Um, you know, you talk about major groups, uh, Sierra Club, and, and we know what they stand for. There have been instances where major groups have all of a sudden gone quiet on an issue um, or reversed course on an issue. Um, and, and, and this has happened on the left and on the right. And you sometimes wonder why that happens. And later on, it turns out that they may have received a large donation. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the issue of studies um, because I think, it, it, it's, it's a, it's, again, it's a difficult issue. But I will say this, is that when a study is being financed and the government is, uh, when a study is going to be used by the government for policy, yeah, I want to know who's paying for that study. 
Um, if the tobacco industry is paying for a study that says that secondhand smoke doesn't kill, I'd like to know about that before we, we, we use that study to adopt policy. And for too long, that has not been the case. We have not known about where the money is coming from. Um, and I would also suggest that, um, that the one half of 1% who are giving, the fact that more people are not giving is probably not due to the disclosure laws. It's probably due to they don't have the money. Um, and or they don't think that their money will have anything to do with the election, that they will influence it. I mean, you know, if you think about giving $50 and you know legally somebody can give $2,700 or $5,400, you know, um, counting the primary and the general, um, and you also know that somebody can spend a million dollars on ads in the campaign, you know, I encourage you to give your $50, but I also understand why you may be skeptical, skeptical to do so. So I will end this by saying dark money. <laughs> Next phase, a multiple choice quiz. And that's because we've had a great debate today, but we have failed in an important way. Every public event in America today is required to include the phrase, Justice Kennedy. And I have just done that. So the quiz is, Justice Kennedy's successor. You have three choices. More skeptical, of, uh, Justice Kennedy's famous for a statement in Citizens United widely and thought to endorse a warm toward disclosure. Will Justice Kennedy's successor be more skeptical, less skeptical, or about, as, about the same regarding disclosure? Brad Smith. I don't know. That was not one of the choices. Larry. <laughs> None of the above. I hope less skeptical. I think more skeptical. Now we go to your questions. Uh, please wait to be called on. There's uh, two young people here with microphones. That's because we want to have an online audience also, and they, they want to hear your questions. Um, and watching online can do that. And uh, this is an interesting thing about disclosure at Cato, which was our traditional policy is please announce your name and affiliation. But I've always been, or at least for some time now, I've been a little wary of that. If you feel like you might be threatened by uh, your question and uh, disclosing your name and affiliation here, uh, you don't have to. But uh, we ask the people do, generally speaking. So who would like to ask the first question? Gentleman in the front. Hadley Arcus, uh, James Wilson Institute. Now, the late Bob Bork and I used to understand the NAACP versus Alabama in this way. That involved, if there's a right to engage in a legitimate association, that right may entail the right to engage with confidentiality if the individual, and he's the best judge of this, has the sense that his exposure would involve him, would expose him to pressures aimed to intimidate him from engaging in a legitimate association, that's, we took the sweep of that, of that rule. I understand Mr. Noble's position. There's a classic case for this in Aristotle about uh, not having political authority used for, to, to advance merely private interests. Wait, we understand that case. But let's say we have the case that Brad raised of LA and Washington, People now caught in the culture wars, where there's a real danger here. They're facing serious dangers. So I want to shift the, the question a different way. If, let's say I took that position. I wanted to protect that liberty deeply. What tack, what's the best strategy for me to use? What tack would I take? Is there something, if, if the court articulated a right, the legislative branch must be able to vindicate the same right. Is there something Congress could do to advance that right articulated in NAACP versus Alabama. You've watched this thing from a number of angles, so I'm saying if I want to protect that right, what's the best strategy for me to use right now? 
Um, you know, one, one question you have there, of course, is questions of, of federalism and, and state law and whether Congress would, would want to preempt or could preempt various state laws in there. I think the biggest thing, though, is simply by not requiring the information. In other words, you don't need a sort of positive right. Now, you know, Larry suggests we should do more to uh, enforce penalties against violence and so on. But, you know, uh, what you have is you have dark bombers and people like that. They don't announce who they are and that they're going to do it. They're often very hard to catch, um, you know, dark mobs and so on. People don't know who, who's in them exactly. Uh, and once they've done their dirty work, it's, it's pretty hard to undo it. So I think one thing you can do is, is really it's just a question of, rolling back. Now, at a minimum, I would suggest that we start raising thresholds, both at which groups have to report donors and the donors they have to report uh, to clear out a lot of the uh, smaller donors uh, to these organizations. But, um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you could raise penalties for political retaliation. I'm not sure that that's going to be terribly effective. Most of the penalties are pretty high. Some people want to put in, they want to expand anti-discrimination law so that, uh, and, and I think one or two states have done this so that you can't like fire somebody from a job because of their political views or something. I think that's probably a mistake. Um, I, I think that leads to a, a variety of consequences that would be a whole nother forum. So I think the best thing is you just got to say, look, um, we're going to live without it. The cost is not, uh, the benefits are not that great. Uh, the costs are, are not that high. And uh, thinking about the cost, I do want to make one point, maybe a little unfair, but I want to point out, we do know exactly how much dark money is given. Exactly, according to Open Secrets, right? If we don't know how much money is given, we know, that is we know because any group that's doing the things for which you traditionally have to disclose, that is, direct political spending, advocating the election or defeat of a candidate, has to produce everything they spend, over $250, right? So we know <laughs> how much they're spending, except for those de minimis amounts. If we don't know, that's only because you want to expand the realm of disclosure to include stuff that's not directly about politics again. That is, uh, you know, electoral politics. That is to include people who are merely trying to persuade the public to think one way or another on an issue to, to, to uh, uh, support one kind of cause or another kind of cause. So uh, that's my basic thing is I think legislators need to be much more sensitive to the cost-benefit analysis. And the best thing they could do would be to raise their reporting thresholds realistically and perhaps less realistically uh, beyond just rejecting these efforts to expand disclosure. Uh, if they've passed them, I think they would probably do well to start repealing them. So Proposition 8. Right. Well, Proposition 8, you know, here you have an interesting question whether you should have to have your name disclosed when you give to a proposition. Now, you know, you're not giving to a candidate, so the candidate's not going to be beholden to you. You're not giving, you're not going to find the corruption. There's no limit on how much you can spend on a proposition. So I do think states should, uh, you know, reconsider whether, again, they need laws on uh, uh, political, you know, uh, uh, ballot issues, whether, in fact, again, the financial support needs to be disclosed there in every case case. Um, but uh, so long as it is disclosed, you do have the issue of, of you know, retaliation under Proposition 8. And what's unfortunate to me is, is that, well, I guess, I guess two things. One is that there isn't much effort to prosecute these people. But two is that even when groups are able to come forward and show that their members have been harassed in some ways in pretty serious forms, like losing jobs and having vandalism, having their property and their churches vandalized and so on, they are still not being able to claim the, the 
uh, NAACP exemption in the lower courts with much success. And this takes me back to that key point. The Supreme Court needs to step in and said, we meant it in NAACP. And even if they didn't mean it as much as I'd like them to mean it, like basically you have a right to be anonymous, they should at least mean it as much as, you know, you, you don't have to be lynched before you can invoke your right to privacy. They should at least indicate that there's some, a, a lower threshold there. If I can just quickly respond, yeah. Um, so here in what Brad is suggesting is, is actually the end of disclosure for also general political contributions of candidates. Because if somebody can just say, I'm, I'm fearful that I'm going to be harassed or I'm gonna lose my job because I gave to Smith, then I don't have to disclose. And if every individual gets to make their own decision, we're done with disclosure pretty quickly. Um, I think most people will not, um, you know, will, will, or many people will opt out of that. The Supreme Court actually in Buckley did give a standard. Um, they said the evidence needs show only a reasonable probability that disclosure of contributors will subject them to threats, harassment, or reprisals from either government officials or private parties. Specific evidence of past or present harassment is, 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 um, is acceptable. Patterns or threats of specific manifestations of public hostility and evidence of reprisals and threats directed at similar organizations. So if you're a new organization and you, you don't have a history, you could say, yeah, but you know, the other organization that agrees with the same thing I do, they've been harassed. But, we, but we've left out one important part of Buckley and NAACP. It was a balancing of the person's interest in um, their associational rights and the government's need for the information. There's really a third element that kind of comes into the, uh, in, into the um, government's need for the information, and that was the threat or, or the influence of that organization. One of the things the court looks at over and over again in these cases is, is this organization that's trying not to disclose, what's, what, what is it, its influence on politics going to be? So in the Socialist Workers Party cases, the court basically said that they don't elect people generally. Um, they spend very little money, and half their, you know, you know, half their candidates are FBI agents, and um, that was a joke, and, but they spend very little money, um, and there's very little chance that they're going to influence our politics. Now, there is, there is, the, there is the, the um, chance that they could throw, you know, they could influence an election by hurting one other candidate. But the court said that that also weighs into this, that they don't present the same dangers that others do. So we have to look at that also. So the mere fact that somebody who's spending a million dollars or $10 million in a congressional race um, through independent expenditures, um, you know, says, gee, I think, you know, I'm going to get some bad publicity on this. Well, that's a lot of money you're spending and the public has a right to know about it. Uh, and, and so I, I don't, you know, I, so, you know, I don't think it's just as simple as people saying, I think I was harassed or I think I'm going to be harassed. Um, you know, Justice Scalia said that it takes a certain amount of civic courage. Um, he was all for disclosure and he said that you should stand up for what you believe in. Um, and if you don't do that, then, you know, then we're going to have a problem in our democracy. Um, and if people aren't willing to have this kind of debate and, and treat people with respect, we do have a problem. But in terms of things I'm willing to give up, I'm not willing to give up knowledge of my government. I'm not willing to, get, to give up knowing who is trying to influence my government and who my government is being responsible to. Gentleman in the middle, about uh, four rows up. Sorry, by the way, I'm always rude. I point, and I don't know your name, so I call you something general. Thank you very much. Full disclosure, my name is Gerald Chandler, and I'm not too afraid. But uh, I want to ask you to examine a few other cases of uh, disclosure. The uh, head of the Chick-fil-A uh, chain uh, had some uh, public political opinions, and it resulted in a call for buy, uh, boycott of Chick-fil-A. Uh, should he have been able to contribute in such a way that it would be anonymous so his chain wasn't hurt and his employees weren't hurt? 
And suppose a newspaper was to um, publish an article by Mr. Anonymous, and was even paid to publish that news article. Should that be disclosed? And uh, if somebody sponsors a book, and the book is highly political, as we've seen many highly political uh, books, should uh, the sponsors of the book have to be revealed? Uh, you want to go first this time? Yeah, sure, why not? Um, the Chick-fil-A example. Um, I don't think that, that he should be, um, should be uh, exempt from disclosure. Um, I think that you know, he made his choice, political choice. People make their political choices of who they want to deal with. Um, I accept that both on the right and the left. Um, boycotts, there's a long history of boycotts in this country. Um, and you know, people may decide they want to support Chick-fil-A because he has a certain political, because he, uh, the owner has a certain political agenda. Other people may decide they don't want to support them. Um, the government doing anything about that, I think, would would would, would be outrageous. And um, you know, government taking action against him for that, uh, you know, for his political views, or or uh, you know, I think would be outrageous. But but again, as far as individuals go, no, I'm not. Uh, you know, I whether or not I agree with definite with boycotts, I think people have a re, have a right to decide who they're going to do business with, um, as long as they don't have an improper or an illegal motive for it. Um, anonymous, anonymous news articles. So the law right now, if you're going to take out an ad that expressly advocates uh, a, a candidate, or if you're going to do it on TV and electioneering communication, then yes, you do have to disclose who you are if it's over a certain amount of money. Um, and so they, they should not be anonymous. Beyond that, right now, you can be anonymous. Now, if it's coordinated with a candidate, and I keep bringing this up, I don't go very much into it, but this whole idea, the Supreme Court said in Buckley that you can make unlimited independent expenditures because they were totally independent of the candidate. And because they were totally independent of the candidate, they could hurt the candidate as well as help the candidate and didn't, um, and didn't give rise to potential corruption. But what we have now is, in large part because of the FEC, um, the, uh, a very, very, very narrow definition of coordination. And so if the, if the person is coordinating with the candidate, on these ads, yeah, then I think there should be disclosure. Books, again, you would have to look at the content. The books are much harder, I think, and because if, it, if, if it's a book that is about a candidate, you know, there's no, there are no attempt to regulate those right now. There's, there was a Citizens United case, which is a very specific situation, um, which, um, and the Supreme Court said no on that one. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to give a certain amount, you know, given all the books that are out there now, uh, even put out by candidates, I'm, you know, I, you know I, I think that I'm willing to give a lot of, you know, space on that one. However, I would say that if somebody funded a book in coordination with a candidate that was a pure attack on the other candidate and said, don't vote for that candidate, yeah, then I think that's a campaign expenditure. I want to emphasize again that we need to separate out two things. One is the traditional disclosure, long accepted at least since Buckley, that you can require disclosure when people give money to candidates or parties or PACs or specifically advocate the election or defeat of a candidate. And two is the forced compelled disclosure of people who are engaging in public affairs, who are contributing to nonprofit groups of whatever sort that engage in public communications, who are engaging in public communications themselves, groups like the NAACP. I keep going back to that. Larry keeps taking it back to somebody contributing to the candidate, right? You know, if I give money to the NAACP and he says, well, I have a right to know who's trying to influence my government. Well, so the NAACP is, is trying, you know, to the extent they're not engaged in direct candidate advocacy, they're not trying to influence your government. I mean, indirectly they are, but again, everything tries to that. They're trying to influence you, right? And the thing about this is that the purpose of disclosure laws is to monitor our government right? It's not for the government to monitor us. Who are we giving to? And so that they can retaliate against us so that Elizabeth Warren can be upset 
you know, because uh, the Brookings Institute, who knows if they're credible, depending on who's funding their study. Brookings, you never heard of them. You know, she had no faith in their credibility without knowing who their donors were. And the fact was she didn't want donors to fund studies that might be critical of her legislation. I don't think that's a very good way to run government at all. And I think that kind of retaliation, threatened retaliation, the guy who wrote that study lost his job at Brookings, lost his position there. You know, I don't think that's a, a particularly good way to go. So to get to your specific examples, to talk about Chick-fil-A, right? It is a cost, it is a balancing test. And the problem is, to relate back to your question, the courts haven't been doing that balancing. They're just giving a blank check to anything that comes along that's marked as disclosure. So let's think about the balancing with Chick-fil-A, right? If he's going to give money directly to a candidate campaign for reasons Larry has suggested, we think the benefits of that disclosure are greater and therefore it's appropriate perhaps to have the disclosure there. I, I think one can question that, but that's pretty much settled. People aren't really pushing on that. On the other hand, what if the, the uh, uh, you know, owner of Chick-fil-A merely wants to give to, I don't know, his church, and his church takes a stand against a, an issue, a cultural issue that bothers some people, right? So they start boycotting Chick-fil-A. He should probably, in that case, have a right to do it. He's not giving directly to a candidate. Uh, you don't need to know at the polls. He's trying to persuade the public. He's trying to persuade you. You can listen to the arguments and think about whether you're persuaded or not. And here's where we're not considering the cost, which you suggested. You know, he, he may recognize he wants to do this, but if his name is forcibly disclosed, then people uh, may do things that will harm his employees and his family and his friends and his company and its shareholders. And that's a cost that we simply seem unwilling to consider. Now, of course, Americans have a right to boycott generally speaking, actually there are some limits on that, but generally they have a right to boycott. That's not the question. The question is can the government force you to give to give information to people so that they can boycott you? So you go into the coffee shop on your way over here, it's not a Starbucks, so you don't know anything about it, it's some local group, and you go in and you say to the, I'd like to speak to the owner, and the owner comes out from the back and he says, I'd like to know who you voted for in the last election. He says, I don't think that's any of your business. You call the policeman and you say, I want you to force this guy to tell me who he voted for because because I'm not sure I want to do business with somebody who voted for Hillary Clinton, right? Okay, is that what we want, right? Is that the deal? I, you know, I don't think that's the deal. You shouldn't be forced to give people the information they want so that they can do acts, things that are detrimental to you. I don't see where that thinking comes from, even if we accept, as I do, that people have a right to boycott. And then when it comes to, you know, anonymous newspaper magazines and books and stuff, you know, I, I mean, again, this was a, a point in Citizens United that if you publish, now Larry said a book that included, you know, it was just an ongoing attack on one candidate. You know, in Citizens United, one of the questions that I think swayed the court was, so you're telling me to the government, if you have a book and it includes one sentence that says vote for this guy, then that can be banned by the government if it's published, like all books are pretty much, by a corporation. And the government said, yeah, that's right, we, we can ban that. And the court said, I don't think that's compatible with our First Amendment law. Now, whether we can disclose who paid for it, I don't know, but I would point out that, you know, historically, I mean, Americans like Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall and Abraham Lincoln and these guys have funded or directly engaged in anonymous speech, often for, very, for a wide variety of reasons, sometimes to protect their other political uh, associations, sometimes to protect themselves, sometimes because they thought it would be more persuasive. Uh, for a wide variety of reasons, they have funded or directly uh, spoken while maintaining their, their anonymity, and I think we want to be very hesitant about 
uh, again, at a minimum, expanding that beyond direct candidate advocacy. But I think there we might even be rather circumspect about how much we, we think that needs to be explained in terms of, of candidate advocacy. And, and Just very, for two very quick responses. One is we're not talking about laws that would require somebody to say who they voted for. We're not talking about laws that require you to say what your position is on an issue. We're talking about laws that are trying to get at who is funding our elections, who is spending money on our elections. And just to be very specific about one of the core problems that is not dealing directly with a candidate is giving to a C4 organization that then takes out an independent expenditure, which they're required to disclose, the independent expenditure, and the independent expenditure attacks, vote, don't vote for Smith. Um, and all you see is that it's from that C4 organization. Um, they are legally, can, they can do that, but you have no idea who actually paid for the but, ad. But I think that is one of the core issues. But you're back to candidate advocacy. And well, I think again- So you're in favor and, of that, you'll accept I, Well, I think it, well, what I've said repeatedly is I think that's pretty much a settled issue. I think there are stronger arguments for it. I think we have overkill in that area too, but I have not, Pushed for or, or promoted that we repeal but, those laws. I do think no we should raise the threshold. It requires you to say, or no law that is effective, that it requires you to say who gave to that C4, unless you can show that they gave for that specific ad. You have to show them the ad and Right, say, and, that, and that gets you a tiny little percentage of our spending. You know, it's got to be, since total dark money spending is somewhere below 3%, that's got to be somewhere around 1%. And I just think we can live with that given the cost. So, so time is running short. Uh, the woman right in the middle also, who I believe is five rolls up. I'll try to answer short. I'll just not. Well, I'll go to lunch. Like my answer to your question. I don't know. <laughs> um, my name is Shelby Emmett. I am the director of the Center to Protect Free Speech at ALEC. Uh, full disclosure, all of our models are right there on the internet, so we're not doing a very good job of hiding anything. Um, with that said, Working with state lawmakers, what we see is, I think you make a very good point about the difference between elections and issue advocacy, but as you both know, the devil's in the details on how you draft these things. So could you actually give me one sentence of if, if you saw a state law, what is it that your policy would actually say? And then could you explain how you would enforce it? So you talked a lot about the enforcement side, but constituents and the everyday person, I don't think could even tell you the name of half of their FEC commissioners, let alone at the city or local or state level. So in a legislative sentence, how would you do this at the state level? How would you write a bill that protects C3s or the person donating to the issue advocacy, but making sure that you're revealing what you want to just focus on on the campaign side. Because in the reality of it, it has to be written down and then somebody has to enforce the law. Right, it, it, there actually, there are some models out there. It's not one sentence because you, you, you cannot do this, as Alec knows, you cannot do most of these laws in one, in one sentence. Um, but what you're looking at is, it's a combination of things that you're looking at. You're looking at to describe the type of ads, to, dis to describe, you, you say a financial threshold about the money. Um, and uh, one way they've done it is the top five givers to a, a group that is spending uh, most of its money or a lot of its money on political ads. But again, I can show you examples of it. There's, there's various um, model legislation out there now and others things are being drafted. It's not always easy because the battle is, and, and I'm somewhere in the middle of this one, the battle is those who want to trace money back through seven different organizations, which I don't necessarily agree with, and those who want to say that, no, you can't go beyond the first organization. But I think you can look at the people who are giving, have thresholds, look at the timing of the giving, et cetera, and decide whether or not it was in fact related to that political activity. But I, if you want, after I can, I can tell you places to look for. Well, you haven't talked about the 
Well, you have you have you have um, enforcement agencies um, like the Federal Election Commission, which is not working very well right now for a variety of reasons. Um, but um, should they have, I'm not sure what you mean by should they have to disclose. Oh, sure. The FEC. Well, one thing is, and and um, the FEC used to be more this way, but because of certain court rulings, can't be as much as it want. All I think all enforcement cases should be made public once they're closed, um, and the records should be made public so that people can see. I think there should be a way for judicial review of what the agency does. So, um, you, if, if the agency is going to enforce the law, obviously you have ability to challenge that. I also think there should be a way to challenge the agency if it doesn't enforce the law. I think disclosure by the agency is very important. In terms of selection of the um, of the uh, 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 of the commissioners on the federal level. You basically, um, you know, the model is that you have to have them nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, and But I think more effort should be put on finding commissioners who will seriously enforce the law, will take all these things into consideration, but are unbiased and will seriously enforce the law. I think one of the problems of the FEC now is it's, it's become very split. Um, and in a strange way, it's become actually more ideological than partisan, though it's a partisan split. It's that you have one side that basically looks at the law very, very narrowly, and the other side that looks at it more broadly. It, turn, it happens to turn out the Republicans look at it very, very narrowly. Democrats look at it very broadly. But you also only have four commissioners out of six right now, so the agency's a mess. So as we finish, three thank yous. First of all, uh, to people who are not here, to the majority that wrote uh, NAACP versus Alabama, uh, a case that deserves to be better known, and I would urge you to go read it. But it was a, a good case, and one in which the good guys won. So we sh all those people who were the majority in that, that day are dead now, but uh, they deserve uh, our recollection and a warm recollection of their work. Uh, and then mm -hmm. I would also like to thank Brad and Larry for coming today, and I would like to thank you for coming. So let's go to lunch on the second floor. It's uh, right. the Yeager Conference Center upstairs, and the restrooms are on the way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. Let's go. Thanks very much.